Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today, to mark London Climate Action Week, our podcast comes from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London. My guests are both from the Grantham Institute. I'm joined by Alicia Gilbert, who's Director of Policy and Translation, and by Dr Yuri Rogel, who's a lecturer in climate change and the environment, and a leading academic whose research actively informs the international climate policy debate. Welcome to Planet Pod, and thank you for hosting us here. Thank you for having having us. Um, One of the challenges we all face is understanding and being able to articulate what we mean by climate change. The definitions and the narrative keeps changing, and it's interesting to note that the Mayor of London has decided to call this week a week for climate action. And I feel that action is moving into our dialogue much more. Um, Greta Thunberg and XR all talk about the climate crisis, the government's declared a climate emergency, and I gather the Met Office is now saying that we need to talk about global heating rather than global warming. And if this is the confusion we're experiencing just describing the wider debate, how much more confusing is it for those of us who are not specialists or scientists or experts to get our heads round IPCC, net zero, emissions gaps, etc. And and I was intrigued when when researching this pod to find out, Alicia, that your title actually is Director of Translation, which strikes me as being a really appropriate place to start because I assume some of what you're doing is trying to make some of that complicated science more accessible to those people who need to know. Yeah, that's right. That's actually precisely why I'm the Director of Policy and Translation. I'm often asked at meetings how many languages I speak. Actually, sadly, very few languages. Um, but I do speak the language of policy. I hopefully speak in a way that that every kind of ordinary citizen and person on the street can understand. But I also have a scientific background, and so I can understand the technical dimension as well. And it's increasingly important that we can translate across lots of different boundaries, science to policy, science to citizens, policy to citizens, the financial community as well. Each of these worlds have their own language, and we need to be able to speak in a way that resonates with individuals, businesses, governments, so that we can all take the right kind of action we need to tackle this really enormous environmental challenge. Absolutely, and I think that that is probably where we're really struggling, isn't it? Because, because once one group gets a sense of what it thinks it needs to do it tries to dominate the debate and we get the you know the the financiers saying it's all about the the cost and the risk and actually we we, for for scientists risk and cost mean something quite different than it does for bankers but it's trying to get us all on that same page isn't it so so how would you go about just explaining some of those really really basic terms that people might need to know and and you know are you talking about climate emergencies or you're talking about climate crises for example So I think we're talking about all of those things. I think you brought that out when you said, okay, the language people speak is different if they're a financier or if they're an individual or if they're a government. That's because what they're trying to do is different. Um, And so a climate emergency, we are in a climate emergency. The reason we use that kind of language, it's to remind us that action today is is necessary. It's actually urgent, even though the, the topic, the subject and challenge we're describing will play out over a very long time years, decades, and centuries, eventually. 
So we talk about climate change originally because it's that gradual change that we understand to be ultimately so dramatic and damaging. But it's also an emergency because it's urgent that we take action today. And so those different kinds of words are used to help us understand both the nature of the problem, which is long term, and also the urgent need to take action. Do you think people have got that message? I have the feeling that a lot of people have got that message right now. And I think one thing I'd like to bring to the discussion is that we're talking about this in London. It's London Climate Action Week. And we often see things, obviously, for our own perspective in the UK. Have we got the perspective that it's urgent? Yes, we do, because language is changing. Local councils and the parliament themselves have adopted this language of urgency. And we see Extinction Rebellion and activism on the street. But it's important to note that in other parts of the world, they had this idea some time before us. And that's because there are impacts of climate change already happening in other parts of the world. There are people in farming communities in parts of Africa that already have seen acute changes to their farming season and patterns. And others in other parts of the world that have experienced severe flooding and challenges to their way of life and already recognize this change. But, but I, I would agree with you, but I'd also take issue that perhaps we haven't quite got the nature of the emergency fully into our um, daily lives and into our consciousness. I mean, there was a report I read the other day that said um, climate emergency, climate crisis appears on the news about as many times as the discussion of rhubarb. So it's not seen, you know, it's not seen as an issue. It's nearly always the kind of fourth or fifth item on the news if it makes it at all. You know, knocked off most news pages by by Brexit, obviously, but but so it's not in everybody's consciousness in that way, is it? And we haven't actually penetrated the vast majority of people in terms of whether it's policymakers, decision makers, influencers, small business people, large business people. We haven't actually got into their everyday thinking yet. I don't think. Yeah, I think there is a uh, slowly growing, increasing understanding amongst uh, amongst people also in the street, what climate change means, what it will mean to them, and then also what they can do about it. But I agree that it is a, a very slow process that will not even be achieved uh, in the next five to ten years to really inform everybody in, in the greatest of details about uh, what needs to happen. At the same time, that's why we have decision makers. That's why we have decision makers that if they are informed and if they can make the right decisions with a long-term perspective, they can make the right decisions today in order to, for society as a whole to achieve those goals over the next one, two or even three decades. And your work, obviously, Yuri, is very long-term because you've been looking at those, those the, you know, goals up to 2020, 2050. Can you just share for listeners a little bit about the things that you've been doing and the, the impact that some of that's had in some of those decision-making processes? Yeah, so the research that I do is actually trying to link what we know about our planet, about the Earth system, about the limits that we have to put on our carbon emissions in order to keep global warming to safe levels and translate that in how we need to reduce our emissions over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And um, some, of those, some of this research has, has really simple implications but really important implications. One of these insights is that to stop warming at any level, we need to reach net zero emissions. And net zero, that really means that for every ton of CO2 that we still produce, we at the same time need to be extracting or taking out one ton of CO2 somewhere else. Now, we know uh, how to do that uh, in certain ways. For example, we have forests that 
actively are sequestering CO2, unfortunately, we don't have that much space over the entire globe that we can just offset all our all the emissions that we are currently producing. So it's really an interplay between reducing emissions and then also capturing some so we get to net zero. Um, that research, if you know that you need to get to net zero and there is a certain amount of carbon dioxide you're allowed to emit in total, which is called the carbon budget, you can also draft a path between where we are today and how to get to net zero. And a lot of my research uh, looks into how that path would look like and then also where we are currently heading. And that research invariably shows that where we are heading today is not towards a net zero world, but is, is quite far away from that with, with warming that goes beyond three degrees uh, by the end of the century and is still not uh, capped at that time, but is still progressing towards higher levels. And that's what we'd call the emissions gap, is it? The emissions gap is actually a concept that um, we developed around 10 years ago as part of a, of a report series of the United Nations Environment Programme. And it's basically the difference between where we should be going to be on a path to limit warming to 1.5 or to 2 degrees, basically to the, to the safe levels that we want to achieve, and where the current pledges of countries are leading us. And particularly, first we focused on 2020. Now that we are so close to 2020 and we haven't filled that gap, uh, we focus on 2030, knowing that each decade of delay comes with a certain consequence. Uh, each decade of delay makes it harder to, to, to stay within a certain carbon budget. So the, uh, the, the Cancun pledges of 2020 actually was a collective pledge, wasn't it? Countries together, and you added up all the emissions across all of the countries and, and came up with the overall carbon budget. And my understanding is that some countries are doing quite well and some countries aren't doing very well at all, which is why we're not meeting that that pledge or is it that everybody's failing? There are different aspects here. Um, first of all, indeed, uh, it's I wouldn't call it a collective pledge. I okay. would call it uh, individual pledges. For a collective that, outcome. For a collective outcome, exactly. And uh, there are good students and there are bad <laughs> students here. And um, when you just look at the numbers, it's not so clear uh, who's the good student and who's the bad student. Some countries are achieving their pledge and they're overachieving their pledge but they're not necessarily good students okay other countries have difficulties achieving their pledge but they're really good students and where is the trick here some countries put forward such weak pledges that, that basically doesn't don't do not involve any real climate action beyond what would would expect normally to happen in, in with normal economic development and all those countries often overachieve what they had pledged, showing that their pledge is absolutely useless okay. in, in order to really... Low, uh, too lower target, basically. Too lower target, yeah. While other countries put quite ambitious pledges, actually are struggling to meet them. However, that means that that pledge actually means something and that it kind of uh, results in a, in a transformation or a transition. Um, it also might at the same time mean that maybe those countries should have put in place a bit more stringent policies uh, to actually make their uh, or, or achieve their pledge. So pledging, as we have done in the UK, to be um, you know, net zero by 2050 feels to me like a possibly a, a not such a good student. We might be underachieving uh, because that, I mean, that's another 30 years away. 
Surely we need to do it more quickly than that. I think it's pretty significant, though. I mean, if you think about it this way, that would end our contribution to the problem. That's pretty significant. So to actually no longer emit any greenhouse gases when that fossil fuels, which are the fundamental basis of our modern economy and industry since the 1800s or so, uh, it still exists. We're just going to take that away. That, that's a pretty significant commitment. And uh, so I'd say, yeah, we should not estimate, underestimate the effort that's required to get there. And also, you have to realize that in order to meet that by 2050, there's a lot of things in our system already that will need to be phased out. So if you think about how often you might buy a car or how often does the average person change their heating system in their house, those things uh, have to also happen gradually with time. And there's also an environmental cost replacing all of those things. So that makes a, a slightly medium term goal for fundamentally reducing our emissions to zero. Still a challenging but also sensible one. Okay, and is that soon enough though? I mean, have we? I mean, don't we hear from the UN we haven't actually got until 2050? We need to do something more dramatic more quickly than that. I think that mid-century 2050 target, that net zero target for 2050, has to go hand in hand with ambitious steps along the way. Just putting that target out there for 2050 and not putting anything in place for the next 5, 10, 15 years is very unconvincing. However, with ambitious steps along the way, reaching that target by 2050 um, is, in my view, um, if both an ambitious and an adequate target. Now, one also shouldn't forget that actually the target that the UK has set itself is moving from at least an 80% reduction to at least a 100% reduction. That means today they have put themselves net zero by 2050. Uh, This does not exclude that in light of new information and new evidence, they will further strengthen it in the future. So I think also that is is an important aspect. So we're giving the government a gold star here, are we? Or are we giving them a... a No. (laughs) We're not. We're We're (laughs) saying, well done for setting the target, but but, but actually we need to be clear about what that target really means. And that comes back to our conversation a few moments ago, doesn't it, about understanding language and the implications of what we're saying. So so the target itself is, is a good indicator but it's all those steps and actions to get to the target. That and are really specifically important. actions and policies. Yeah. I mean, you can, a strategic goal is the important first step, and then you need all kinds of underpinning policies and regulations and support for good actors in business and punishment for bad actors in business that help you reach that target. The target in itself is not going to magically be achieved. No, okay. And also, the gold star will come when, when they reach net zero. I think that is, it would be a huge achievement. On the way, they can get definitely encouragement. And what they, uh, what one sees now from, for example, the reports of the Committee on Climate Change, on the progress reports, one sees that the government is not doing so good at, at reaching or meeting the near-term goals that it has, has set itself. So there is definitely no stars to be given there. And there the government really needs to ratchet up its, its ambition and its action. Um, now... Thinking of whether whether a net zero target by 2050 is sufficient, um, I was one of the coordinating lead authors on the 1.5 degree special report, and in particular the chapter that looked at these long-term scenarios. And um, a net zero 2050 target by the UK um, and net zero greenhouse gas 
target by the UK is definitely consistent with pathways, with global pathways that limit warming to 1.5 at maximum or around 1.5. Now, there are different aspects that one can also further look into here. Um, First of all, this is based on our best estimate of how the climate would respond. We know that best estimate means around a 50% chance that climate will respond more and that we will actually see more warming and 50% that we are lucky and that it will be cooler than or that we end up with less warming than 1.5. Now, we're not necessarily interested in just reaching a number. We're interested in avoiding impacts. And that means that if we have bad news over the next decade or, or or, or, or two decades and we see that more and more impacts are at the higher end of what we predict, then we actually would need to be uh, declining our emissions faster, and then uh, there is still an important additional step to be made by the government to avoid those additional impacts. That's really fascinating, because I think that what people do is they say, okay, we've set a target, we think we understand what 1.5 means and 2 degrees, and, and therefore we'll just do A, B and C and we'll achieve it. But actually what you're saying is that those it's an endless process of re-evaluation, of mitigation, of looking at where we've got to, almost, well, year by year, possibly more frequently than year by year, constantly looking and re-evaluating and coming back. How do you translate that into meaningful policy um, uh, you know, decisions or meaningful policy requirements when it is so incredibly complex and such a moving feast all the time? So I think in that regard, this problem isn't that different than other challenges we face and that government has to manage businesses as well. They set a strategy and then the context changes and things move. And what we have to do is help the government make the best decision they can with the best evidence at that time. So what's vitally important to us is often, particularly within the academic community, there's a lot of excellent knowledge there. And we have to make sure that we unlock that and we share that with the government so that they can understand what is it we know about how policies have worked recently in the very recent past in this field and in its related fields so that they can create the right regulatory environment, the right policy incentives to help us achieve the emissions reductions. And we've seen good policies and and not so good policies and things go wrong in the past, so let's make sure we learn from them. And uh, we also use the parallels of, of other sectors, particularly with technological growth. A lot of people talk about the, the behavior change and the uptake of technology that we've seen with very little effort. How can we copy that and use what we've learned from those processes to help people make environmentally friendly actions and decisions and purchases and adopt those technologies at the most rapid rate possible to see the change that we need? And do you feel that government's listening? I mean, are we have we got some policies coming coming out of government that we actually can be proud of, that we can say, yes, this is going to make a difference, we're leading in the field? Or, I mean, because Greta Thunberg kind of held us to account a bit and said, you know, recently in her, her visit, didn't she? And she said, actually, you know, you say you're doing frightfully well, but you're not doing quite as well as you think you are. I mean, are there policies that are coming through that are actually making a real change? There have been, and there have been some terrible mistakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I can think about, you know... The, the, for example, taking out the feed-in tariff, so immediately discouraging people from providing you know, energy through solar panels and things like that. I mean, small things that perhaps financially made sense when the Chancellor was looking at his budgets, but actually in terms of the environment and people's behaviours don't make sense because we're trying to shift people's behaviours by some of those policy-making, aren't we? So I think we have to remember that policy-making is also political and ideological. So there's a lot of things that we see we want to change. So we want to change the amount of emissions. We want to change perhaps the way that we consume meat. We want to change the way that we recycle and reuse materials. All of these things help the carbon budget. The way in which you 
achieve those changes can be different for different people on different parts of the political spectrum. So I think that's an important starting point. Um, and, and so there can be different policies. They can be successful in different ways, depending on who's in power. So are people listening? The government is definitely listening to us. There are lots and lots of really excellent people in the civil service and also politicians who really care about this issue. And they understand that looking at the evidence matters. Many of the decisions about policy that are made are ultimately political decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be conscious of that. Um, the way in which different parties want to solve climate might be more business orientated, or they might be more regulatory orientated, depending on what their political preference is. I actually think there are things that can work in both those areas. Um, our, our goal is to show what's worked effectively in the past and what those different options are. Now, what can we be proud of? Um, <laughs> I think what is amazing, okay, for me, is I went to Brighton for the first time in a while, and I was sitting at the beach, and what do I see? I see an offshore wind farm. In the discussions in the UK about removing greenhouse gases uh, in the power sector about 10 years ago, If you'd have mentioned offshore wind, you would have been laughed out of the room. It was so expensive as a technology, prohibitively expensive. We have lots and lots of offshore wind investment. The costs of that investment are absolutely plummeting in the UK. And we have now a leading offshore wind industry, which we didn't have. And that was all because of inward investment from the government. I'll be honest and say that came at the expense of investments they could have made in other clean technologies. So perhaps it wasn't the most cost effective choice, but it has led to a growth in an industry and it has reduced emissions at the same time. So that's I would say that is a good news story. We also have areas where perhaps the government could have done better. There was an absolutely fantastic smart homes policy um, that was just literally taken off the table. But what we see now is a very similar version of that policy. Looks like it's going to be re-implemented again. So even where there's been some setbacks, I think that, you know, I'm a believer that that evidence can make a difference even to these political decisions. You're obviously an optimist as well, which is always a good thing. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's quite interesting listening to you, to you describing this, that interplay between business and, and, and regulation. And, and surely that's what we need, is we need, this is a, a, a whole solution, we need a holistic solution. We can't say it's up to governments to regulate, it's up to policymakers to create policy and therefore things will happen. We have got to take every single community along the journey together, haven't we, and actually get them working together. So, so that, you know, the benefit of the green economy to, to the commercial interests and to business is significant. You know, these are new technologies and new technologies require early investment but once they're up and running they can be extremely profitable so there's money to be made in changing our behaviors and changing the way we live our lives as well isn't there so it's actually balancing those different interplays and those different forces all the way through yeah i think here Alyssa can probably also comment on this there's indeed money to be made at the same time the money might not be made by the same people who are making money today absolutely and i think that that is the big challenge um, which is also something we have worked on here in in the framework of what we call the just transition, um, is that there are winners on, and losers, and um, big companies can be losers or, or big industries can be losers, and um, but normally those industries should have thought about it as a, at a more systemic level. What one really should think about is um, is the people that work in those industries, and that in if if from an academic point of view, you run a model and you say, oh yeah, they just adjust and then they, and then they tran- transition into another industry or, they, um, or they're substituted or whatever. Um, th- these are real lives, these are real families, th- these, are, uh, these are paychecks that disappear. Mm. And um, so 
it is really important that there is a lot of emphasis on how do you transform in a just way and in a positive way your society so that it actually then can operate in this low carbon world and that it also can kind of prosper in that low carbon world not just the climate but also you the society as a whole um, can prosper and that requires a very different way of thinking doesn't it It requires us all to be a lot more flexible and and you know as the, the parent of, of two young people who are coming into the workforce you know their their lives their job lives will be very different from from those of people in my generation, we won't necessarily go into a job, stay in that job for 40 years and then get a gold watch. I mean, the likelihood that you'll transition from employer to employer, from job to job, from sector to sector, and even across industries and skill sets is increasing. And that must be a model that works well if we want people to adapt in order to respond to the climate demands, doesn't it? But it also requires a different type of thinking and a different way of working, doesn't it, in terms of what we're asking of people. It doesn't, but I think for the younger generations it might not be so hard. I think we have to think about the 50 years old, the actual the, 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 the people that have worked already 30 years in the previous mindset and still want to earn a good income for the last 15 years of their lives uh, to, to support their families. And I think that is really where the biggest challenge is. Uh, younger generations, they will, they will create a future. Uh, but it all the, are the older generations today that one should also not forget. We should we should make the the our society as interesting as possible or as good as possible for both generations and for for all citizens. Mm. And I mean, I think it's interesting because you're talking to us at a university, and we've spoken so far mostly about the research part of what we do. But obviously, at a university, education is an enormous part of what we do. And one of the things I'm involved in this week as London Climate Action Week is about what skills we need to build for the future. And when we talk about building skills for the future, we're not just talking about the people who pass through our doors as undergraduates. We're talking about people in every phase and age of their life. And that's also because education is changing. Mm. Um, So people who are retiring might think about gaining a new skill and doing something different. And there's a lot that that we can give in terms of skills building as part of this, this really exciting agenda. And I think what we're trying to do is create a, well, it's certainly what XR always says, isn't it? We're trying to create a fairer, juster environment for everyone, aren't we? I mean, the idea that work might look different, that we may not have those incredibly long hours, you know, the, the, that culture of presentism. We might all work a little bit less and play a bit more, but then the benefits will be more equally shared out. It's quite a, in some ways, it's quite a kind of utopian <laughs> vision that we're putting forward, isn't it? But but being driven by something that feels a little bit dystopian, which is the you know the collapse of the climate and the emergency that we face. So so it's trying to get that those benefits across of, of working and living in a different way that's both people friendly and planet friendly, and that must be a, a lot of the messaging that you're sharing, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, the multiple benefits that you can get from actions on climate change. And those multiple benefits can involve improvement in air quality, improvement in your personal health because of the way you've chosen to eat or the way you've chosen to travel. Uh, uh, So there's lots of kind of benefits that there are there when we spend a lot of time trying to talk about those and also to try and help our decision makers value those benefits when they make decisions. Our government structures, both nationally and locally, are very structured in sort of silos and blocks. So the Department of Health will make a health decision, the Department of Transport will make one about mobility, and the Department of Environment will make one about environment. But actually, you can take one action that cuts across all of those places. And how can we help our institutions make decisions in that kind of a way? So that's that's a very important part of the discussion. We've got to have a lot more cross-sector conversations, haven't we? That's what we need, really. 
Absolutely. I mean, one needs, really needs to ha have a systemic perspective here. But I also wanted to comment on your, um, on your idea that it is a very utopian future. At the same time, it is also very strongly supported by scientific evidence that basically shows that more equal societies, societies with, more, uh, with higher educational attainment and societies w which are more collaborative and also internationally more collaborative, have higher chances, have lower costs, and can deal with this climate uh, emergency in a much better way. So it is not just a utopian um, fairy tale. It is actually also supported by scientific evidence, and, but that doesn't make it any less challenging to achieve. Oh, I never use utopia in a pejorative yeah. sense. Actually, <laughs> utopia is always what I'm trying for. So, and, and we know that that is actually the best for all people. So that's, you know, in its purest sense. But you're absolutely right. And I think that underpinning of science is absolutely crucial. Because, because it gives people the kind of grounding that they need to make those decisions, which I think in some cases might feel quite high risk. So living your life differently, working differently, choosing to adopt you know, different ways of, of you know, different homes and different cars and all of those things. They actually, for some people, we've been working in one particular way for a very long time and we're now asking people to make quite significant changes. And have you any thoughts about the smaller businesses as well? Because I know a lot of the work that you do is with, with big multinationals, but actually the vast majority of people in the UK particularly are employed in medium and small-sized firms, and they're the ones who sometimes find it difficult to make these transitions. I mean, I think the, the biggest opportunities lie for these small and medium-sized businesses, actually. And those are the, the delivery agents of change, actually. So if you think about one of the things you might need to do to make yourself have a lower-carbon lifestyle in the future, one of the big challenges is going to be decarbonising the way we heat our houses and cool our houses. And at the moment, if you needed to change that, you would call a boiler engineer. That's probably someone from a relatively small business. And you would really trust that person. You would listen to the advice that they gave you and make the decisions you have about probably quite an expensive purchase for your home and something that you expect to last for decades. We're going to need that that boiler individual to be multiplied a thousandfold and be able to tell you about your low carbon heat options. And not just that, convince you to remove a boiler from your home forever and possibly remove your whole gas connection to your house, which probably in generations, at least one and a half generations, you haven't used any other form of heating and don't know anyone who's used any other form of heating. So that makes that person a vital member of their community and it creates enormous business opportunity for that person. And the same is true for people who are selling you a car or in fact maybe selling you mobility services and perhaps the person providing you with waste management in your local authority. Um, that might be a local business now who might be doing composting or digesting. So there's actually really a lot of opportunity for these smaller businesses that can usually be more nimble and more creative and more flexible. Um, for some of those businesses, though, it will just be about managing risk um, and changing the way they, they operate in a business that they already provide. Um, and that will be also important to hear their voices. What are they demanding? Are those people now saying, actually, I want zero carbon cloud computing facilities because I run a software business? Mm -hmm. That demand, hearing that demand through small businesses can also be very powerful. And what can people do on an individual basis? I mean, I know people have got terribly excited about um, uh, you know, reducing plastic and single-use plastic is, is the one that's getting all, is getting all the attention. But actually, it goes so much beyond just plastic consumption, doesn't it? What can we, what can we call out to listeners of, of Planet Pod to do to change their behaviours 
So just in front of me, I am unfolding our very helpful and beautiful flyer that says... Visual aid, which is not such a a lot of use (laughs) Well, you can look it up online, actually. We'll get a copy onto the website, definitely. So it's nine things you can do about climate, which we published and were circulating just this week at the the start of London Climate Action Week. And in it, there's lots of different things that you can do personally to make a difference. What I'd start off by saying is, you know, it's a journey. Don't feel like you have to do everything all at once. Um... Part of individual action, you need to be supported by the infrastructure you have. It might be harder for you to adopt uh, low-impact transport if you live in a rural area, but it might be easier for you to make changes about uh, eating locally sourced produce. So choose something that seems easy and natural for you and take a stepwise approach. Um, Some of these actions aren't for everyone. Some of the things that we ask people to do or suggest that you do can be just making your voice heard. If this is something you care about, make sure that elected officials and local government or national government get a letter from you. They really listen to these. I mean, honestly, I was speaking to an MP a few weeks ago and was impressed by the fact that they had people visiting their constituency office talking about climate change. And you know what? Not many people visit these constituency offices, so it really matters to them. Um, Other areas uh, that um, might be obvious is about how you transport yourself. Try and cycle now and then. That's very low carbon. Walk a little bit more. That also improves your health in terms of, uh, of, in terms of benefits. Um, people talk a lot about flying, um, and that's very contentious because I think people start saying, well, does that mean I can never see the sun? Well, first of all, it's been very sunny here these past few weeks. Um, it doesn't mean, of course, you should go and visit your family abroad and those kind of things. And I would say that air travel is the hardest technologically, so it will be the longest off to solve. Um, but think about how you travel in general. Um, that can be for long-distance journeys, taking the train instead of a flight if you're in the UK, for sure, um, leaving your car at home. If you're someone who has the means to buy a vehicle, then think about your next vehicle being zero carbon or low carbon. Um, so there's lots of different things you can do. I don't know what you'd pick out, Yuri, as your favorite from our little flyer. <laughs> I think my, my favorite is definitely make your voice heard to those in power, because um, what we understand is these these changes that you make in your in your personal life are important, and they they help also to uh, for for one to live a lifestyle that is in agreement with with what with what you believe and what you what your priorities are in life. At the same time, all those small changes, single changes, will still not make the difference that uh, or the changes that are required. And for those really long-term government decisions are absolutely required. Otherwise, the investment in the infrastructure and in the transformation that are required just won't happen. So uh, I think that is really the important one. At the same time, I think uh, my background is in energy systems uh, engineering, and I think uh, trying to reduce the amount of energy you use, uh, and that doesn't need to go with a reduction in comfort, but just by, for example, insulating your house in a better way uh, can also really help this transformation becoming much more manageable. Yeah. And I think also uh, talking about it too, isn't it? I mean, having conversations, having conversations yeah. with people, you know, having conversations like the one we've just been having and trying to constantly better inform ourselves. I mean, I'm so frustrated that, that, that we don't have more of this public debate through our, our, our media and, you know, through newspapers and, and television and news reports, because it is incredibly important and people do need to be informed. So so just on that note, you're just as a kind of closing thing, what would you think would be the most important things need, people need to understand around some of the climate science? And we've talked about 1.5 and 2 degrees and we've talked about emissions. What are some of the really clear messages that if we don't understand 
we should try and find out more about? I will just draw some of the key insights of last year. Uh, 1.5 degree report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And from that report, we really got that uh, every tenth of a degree matters. Um, 1.5 degree is better than 1.6, it's better than 1.7, better, and go on and go on. So it is already very late at this point, and we have been waiting very long, and so it's really urgent that we do something. It is never too late to do more. Uh, so that is really important. The second uh, important insight is that uh, to limit warming or to stop warming at any level, again, 1.5, 2, 2.5, we need to get, bring global emissions to net zero. So net zero is always an, a really important milestone in any trajectory of dealing with this challenge. And then the other uh, most a uh, very important insight is we understand, we know the technologies, we know the transformations to make that happen. So um, from a scientific point of view, the science is clear and the solutions are, the solution options are clear. Now it is really also about society and decision makers to take the choices and make the choices that are required to, uh, to make this transformation happen. So it's up to us basically, isn't it? It is up to every one of us. Thank you both so much. It's been absolutely fascinating and um, really looking forward to hearing more from you during the Action Week. So thank you for your time. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.